This morning's passage says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning. Ooh, that's a warm, hot mic, Octavius. Good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is John. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at Redemption Peoria. We're glad you could join us this morning. <clears throat> Let me give you just two quick announcements, um, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll jump into Ephesians chapter 3. The first, um, there are some doors over to my right, your left. Those are a direct route back to the kids, if you have kids back there. Um, and some of you, including myself, exit that way because it's faster and you beat the traffic instead of having to go out the back. Um, we need you to go out the way you came in just for safety reasons, and our children's director has their kind of pseudo office back there. And so if you would please do that, that would be really helpful for us. And so don't exit these side doors unless there's an emergency, please do. Um, but just go out the way you came in. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have something here called a Start Here class. Some of you have been through it. We started this in the fall as we continue to grow as a church. We wanted to have a clear pathway or an on-ramp to our community, both to get involved in a redemption community, to get to know us, for us to get to know you. How can you serve on Sundays? So those classes are three weeks long, the first three weeks of every Sunday, and we've been doing com- them consistently. But in the summer, we're going to take a little break. And so we will not have a Start Here class in the month of June or the month of July, which means... May, next month, starting next week, will be the last time that you can jump into a Start Here class until the month of August. So just want to put that in front of you, make you guys aware of that. Um, That makes a lot more sense, I think, for all of us, especially as the summer, a lot of people are in and out of town. Um, And so if you're one of those people that's like, well, I'll do it next month, and I'll do it next, I'll do it next month. You got to do it this month unless you're going to wait until August. So the way you can get connected with that, you can go to our website and scroll down to the bottom to the events page. You can click the Start Here class and get all the information in the RSVP for that. Or you can go out to the Connect Desk after service and talk to somebody there. So those are two things I want to make you aware of. Let me pray for us that God would illuminate our hearts and minds to the text this morning. And then we'll jump in. Pray with me, please. Father, thanks for your truth, for your goodness. Thanks that we can gather here together to hear it. I pray that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, that you would speak clearly to us, and that we would be changed. Father, that we would look more like you than when we did when we came in here. So we need your spirit to engage us with that. We trust you. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles if you don't already have them open to Ephesians chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles outside in the lobby. Please take one of those and keep it if you don't have a Bible already. We have been walking slowly through the book of Ephesians, if you're new with us, here at Redemption Peoria. We started January 1st, and we are just now getting to chapter 3 of Ephesians. So that kind of gives you the pace at which we've been going through this book, which has been fairly slow, three or four verses on a Sunday at a time. Um, But they've been really deep and really rich. And so this 
specific chapter in chapter 3 is really a hinge chapter. It kind of turns the corner. Most scholars talk about Ephesians, and it's six chapters in the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and they break it down into two categories. The first category, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then the second categories are chapters 4, 5, and 6, which I would agree with. I just think this chapter, the third chapter, is kind of a hinge between 1 and 2 and 4, 5, and 6. And the reason I think this is because really what Paul is doing in this chapter, he's going to pray. He's going to pray for the people of Ephesus that he's writing to. And you see him do this in his other letters, specifically Romans. He gives all this deep, rich theological truth in the first half of the book. He does it in Romans chapters 1 through 11. And then he says this word in chapter 12, the very first word. He says, therefore, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, because all this rich, true stuff that is theological and beautiful is true, now do this. Therefore, walk it out this way. And he does this in Ephesians as well. He gives us the beauty of our salvation and who we are in Christ in chapters 1 and 2. All this deep, rich, theological truth. And then he begins to turn the corner that we're going to see today in chapter 3. He's going to pray for him, and then he's going to start in verse 4. He's going to say, therefore, live it out this way. Here's the practical way you can live out everything I mentioned in these first couple of chapters. And what we're going to do, if you look at your Bible, you'll see a little dash at the beginning of verse 2 of chapter 3. Right? Some of your translations will say assuming. Some say surely. Some say indeed. And what that dash represents is actually a parenthesis in the original language. And so Paul actually is given a parenthetical from um, chapter 3, verses 2, all the way through 13 is a big parenthesis. It's kind of this sidebar, this kind of side tangent that Paul goes on. And then he picks up again and he begins to pray for him, what he originally intended in chapter 3. And so what we're going to talk about these next several weeks, three in particular, is we're going to look at this parenthesis that Paul is giving us through the Spirit in the Scriptures And we're going to talk about who this gospel is for today. Next week, we're going to talk about what are the depths of the gospel. And then the third week in this parentheses through chapter or through verse 13, we're going to look at how the gospel is displayed. Who the gospel is for, what are the depths of the gospel, and then how the gospel gets displayed. So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Let's stop right there. Because as you read this text, if you've heard it read or you're reading it yourself and you say, for this reason, I hope you're having an internal monologue of a question going, for what reason? What what reason are you talking about, Paul? And so we have to set it up a little bit in chapter 2, the context of where Paul is going to begin to go in this kind of side tangent. And so when he says, for this reason, we really have to look back at chapter 2. And we're going to do a really quick flyby. We've been in-depth in it the last couple of weeks. Ephesians chapter 2 is all about reconciliation. And Paul does an unbelievable job of breaking down that chapter. In the first part of the chapter, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he talks about vertical reconciliation with God. Individual reconciliation with God. And for most of us, that's how we know the term the gospel. When we talk about sharing the gospel, what is the gospel message? Typically what we're talking about is that we are sinners, 
We're separated from God. There's a gap between us and God. God is holy. We are not. What happened in Genesis 3, there's massive ripple effects in the story. And so we're separated from God. And Paul does that in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, saying that we weren't following God. We were following the prince of the power of the air. It's strong language in verse 3 of chapter 2. He talks, he says we're like children of wrath. But the beauty of the gospel comes in at verse 4 of chapter 2. But God. Even though you were here, you were separated from God individually. But what God did in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul defines the reality of our souls individually and vertically, and there's a gap. We need help. We need reconciliation. And because of what Jesus does, we start to hear it in verse 4, we can be made right with God vertically. But Paul doesn't end there, as we've been talking. The next section of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, he starts talking about the gospel in horizontal terms. And so if we have only bought into this idea that the gospel is purely vertical, it's just me and Jesus, we kind of have a, a truncated, small version of the gospel message. We really do, and we see this because the gospel in its essence, in its scope, is cosmic. God is in the midst of changing and rearranging and putting all things back together for his glory. Everything, And this is really important to us as a church, that the gospel wouldn't just be about this ticket to heaven, this individual vertical reconciliation with God. It's bigger and richer and truer than that. Jesus is in the midst of, through the cross, putting everything back together as he originally created it to be. The gospel is cosmic in scope. And I love how author Sky Jitani says it like this. When speaking about the gospel, he says, why does this matter? Why does it matter that the gospel is just not individual, just me and Jesus? Listen to what he says. Why does this matter? It matters because what we believe about the scope of Jesus' redemption affects the scope of our Christian life. If the cross was really just about my redemption, then following Christ would be limited to applying that salvation to my life, relationships, and circumstances. If the scripture says the cross is about Jesus defeating all evil and reigning over all things, then following Jesus is about submitting my personal life to his reign, but also about carrying the healing power of Christ to every part of the world, including social, the social, the economic, the political, the physical, the intellectual. It's about seeing his will done on the earth as it is in heaven. The gospel, men and women, is cosmic in scope. It should change and move every part of your life, that all of life is actually all for Jesus. But again, a lot of us have bought into this idea, and I worked for a ministry that when we talked about sharing the gospel and training people how to share the gospel, it was typically just the Ephesians 1 through, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It was this vertical reconciliation, which again is massively important. Don't, I don't want to underplay that. But look at what Paul does, as he says, for this reason. And really, when you read the scholars and you read the commentaries, when he says for this reason in chapter 3, he's talking about verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. That's the reason he's mentioning. And Paul doesn't leave the gospel just at a vertical level. 
just at an individual level, he actually flips it and puts it at a horizontal level with the rest of the chapter. And it's so beautiful how he does this. He does the same thing he does in chapter 1. Look at the language. Look at the parallel or the mirroring that Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember the first verse, he defines reality. You're sinners. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. And then he says, but God in verse 4. And then he continues to talk about what your life individually reconciled looks like with Christ. So he does the same thing in 11 through 22, starting in verse 12. He's talking specifically to the Gentiles because there were God's people, the Jewish people, and then there were the Gentiles. Because of sin, those two people were separated from each other. In verse 12, remember, he's talking to the Gentiles, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope without God in the world. He's doing the same thing. He's saying, not only were you individually apart from God, the Father, you were also communally broken from each other, Jew and Gentile. But look at what he does, just like in verse 4. Verse 13, but Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He continues to talk about what this reconciliation looks like communally between these two people. And this text is extremely racially charged. It's culturally charged with language. And Paul is doing this on perfect. Jew and Gentile were separated because of sin. And now because of the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus, they're actually being put together in this beautiful, multi-ethnic, cultural movement called the church. That's what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason. For what reason? That the gospel is horizontal, that it is um, communal in nature, not just vertical, but it's about loving people. And you start to see this all over the Bible if you really start looking for it. Even the Ten Commandments, the first five commandments deal with loving God. What do the second five deal with? Loving people. When somebody approaches Jesus and says, tell me the greatest commandment, what does Jesus reply? He says, it's about loving God, all your heart, soul, and mind, and it's about loving others as yourself. It's both vertical and horizontal at the same time. John talks about this in his letters. In 1 John specifically, he is all over this subject, talking about loving God by loving people. 1 John 2, verse 9 says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Men and women, for you to come to Jesus and just think it's just about me and Jesus and I'm reconciled with God because of what Jesus has done, and then you don't do it horizontally, you don't do it communally, you don't do it with other people, you're missing it. If we had a conversation... I said, you're, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, okay, let, tell me how you love God. What are things that are evidence that you love God? You might reply to me, well, I read my Bible, I pray, go to church, and all those things are great, and those are evidence of how you can love God, but the majority of answers we would probably give in our, cult- in our culture and our context is primarily vertical. Reconcile with God vertical. If I said, how do you love God? And you said, actually, I care for my neighbor. Actually, I'm trying to love people well. That is a horizontal perspective of loving God, and it's central, central to the gospel. And so when Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 says, For this reason, I, Paul, 
a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's starting saying, listen, because this stuff is true, because of the horizontal nature of the gospel, and because you have been opposed, Jews and Gentiles, and you are being brought together in a multicultural setting, that is hard. And I'm going to pray for you. And he says, I'm actually a prisoner on your behalf. Because most scholars think the reason he's in prison at the time is for advocating for the Gentiles. And when you love other people that are different than you, be ready to get pushback. That is part of loving people well. So he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This is interesting. This is the first time that we find out from the context of the letter itself that he's in prison. Most of us know he's in prison because we've um, studied it, but this is the first time it's mentioned in the book. He mentions it also in chapter 4 and also chapter 6. And for some of you that have been coming a while, we, we put those gates up outside in the, outside the parking lot to make you feel like you were a prisoner when you came in. Because how horrible are those gates out there? I drove up this morning, and I was like, that's really welcoming. That just cries, come join us. And I understand it's for school, it's for safety, all that. Those fences are new out there. But it's like, ah, this is terrible. It's like, welcome to Shawshank Peoria, everybody. This is, we're, we're glad you're here. I'm like, I'm looking at it going, this is going to be a, a, a flow problem. They're going to bunch up here. I'm, and I had to pray because that was how my morning went, just so you know. Uh, but it's the first time in any regard Paul mentions that he's a prisoner for the Lord on behalf of the Gentiles. And then in verse 2, he starts in with his parentheses. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And it's almost like this whole side tangent of these 12 verses is really, really interesting to me. Because it's like Paul's about to pray for them. He's saying, because this multicultural, multi-ethnic thing is going to be really, really hard, but it's actually how you love God by loving other people, I'm going to pray for you. And so because he starts there, he goes, wait, wait, wait. Let me make sure you get this part right. I'm going to pray for you, but, but if you don't understand what I'm about, like if you don't understand this, then the rest of the book isn't going to make any sense. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 aren't going to make sense because what he begins to do in 4, 5, and 6 is he gives some really, really practical, tangible ways of what it looks like to love other people in the midst of community, which is really hard. And so he says he's about to pray, and he, he stops for a second. He says, wait, I don't I don't want to assume anything. Like, let me make sure you get this part. And my friend Vince, Vince and I, Vince is an elder here at Redemption Peoria. We have um, some sons that are both in seventh grade, and they play basketball. And Vince and I play basketball, and we began to coach this year. And so we jumped into the coaching, and we're kind of coaching this kind of pseudo club basketball team. It's seventh and eighth graders, and we have a pretty good team. Um, We've got good kids on our team. We've got talent on our team. It's been really fun for me. I, I won't speak for events. It's been really fun for me to coach this season. And um, a couple games ago, we were playing a team that we had already beat at the beginning of the year. We hadn't lost at this point. And we were just not playing well. Um, kids were just not executing. We we're kind of tired. We we're sloppy. I don't know if we just thought, well, we already beat this team. We'll beat them again. But we were down the whole game, basically. But we kind of had a sense in the huddle when everybody brought it in, like, okay, well, we're going to get them. Like, we'll, we'll climb back out of it. We'll get this team. So with seven seconds left, we get a rebound. We call timeout. We're down 
by one basket, two points. We get seven seconds. We get the ball at midcourt. Everybody runs in. And since we started coaching this team, we began to run an offense, kind of this motion offense called the flex. And since we started that and they started getting the rhythm of that, like as soon as we started that, I'm like, if we ever get in this situation where we need a play at the very end, like I got the play. Like I got it in my back pocket. But I, gotta, I can't pull it out whenever. Like, I got to wait for this, like, spe- it's like the Philly special. It's like this specific moment has to happen for it to work. So this was it. This was the moment. Seven seconds left. Everybody comes in. I get my coaching board. I'm drawing up there. I'm like, you're going to go here. You're going to go here. It's going to pick around. It's gonna- we're going to make a basket. I know we're going to tie the game. We're going to go to overtime. We're going to win. Everybody feels good about the play. Everybody knows where they're going. We break. They go out onto the floor. Here's the problem. I made a massive assumption as a coach. The assumption I made was that they'll get the ball in bounds. So, I, you know, if I had to rewind and do it over again, I would still say the whole play, but right before they were there, okay, go, wait, wait, let's make sure you get the ball in bounds. So, you go this way, you go this way, pass it into this person, and let's go. So they got out there, and the defense kind of swarmed them, and my guard zigged when he should have zagged, and so the ball got thrown in, and it got stolen. We fouled. We lose the game. So we didn't even get to run the play. I, I've been waiting for this. Like, this is, this is going to work. And that's what I think Paul's doing in the text here. He's saying, listen, he's about to pray for him because he's going to give him all this stuff on how to run the plays of loving other people in a multi-ethnic environment. And he says, wait a minute. we got to get the ball in first. Like, if you don't get this part in this parentheses, these 12 verses, like, it's not going to make any sense. It won't work. And so when he says, I'm assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, And then he builds on this mystery language, starting in verse 3. He says, how this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. The written briefly part, we don't know if it's talking about specifically those those first two chapters of Ephesians, or if we're talking about another book of the Bible that he's written. But he's written briefly, and he's saying, let me make sure you get this. Like, this is really, really important before we move on. Verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's saying, so I don't want to assume this. You need to understand this. There's this mystery, and you've read about it, and you can perceive my insight into this mystery. Now, when we say the word mystery, it's a little bit different than the original language, which is in the Greek here. When I hear the word mystery, I think of crime dramas on TV. My wife and I, back in the day, we used to watch the show Castle all the time. Anybody ever watched Castle? It's this show about this homicide detective in New York, and it's this mystery novelist. And they team up, and at the beginning of every show, there's a murder. But you don't see who committed the murder, and then throughout the show, you're getting clues, and you're getting pieces, and at the end of the show, you find out who murdered who, and you're trying to guess it the whole way through as a viewer, right? There's other shows like this. So when I think of mystery, that's what I think of. And if you've watched that show or shows like it, you you start to see a pattern in the writers pretty quickly. Like, in the first five minutes, I knew. I was like, "It's, it's that guy. It's her. She did it right there. Yes, you. I'm pointing at you. See? And so you start to figure it out because the clues they give you make you try and figure out. Well, the word mystery here in the Greek is different than that. It's not clues that we get to figure out. It's not like you read this and you think, man, see? The Illuminati. Like I knew Da Vinci Code. 
was real. Like if I flip my Bible this way and I, like, that's not, that's not what it's saying when it's saying mystery. They're not clues for you to figure out. It's actually the word mystery talks about there's clues, but you, you can't figure it out on your own. The original language says that God has to be the one that reveals it to you. That's the word mystery in the original language. And you see it here in the text in verse 3, how this mystery was made known to me by revelation. You see it again in verse 5, at the end of 5, by the Spirit. And so we need God to wake us up to what this mystery is. And Paul's saying he's done that. He's done that. Look at verse 5 as we continue. Uh, verse 4, back it up. Uh, when we read this, you can perceive my mystery into the, or the insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as, as, as it has now been revealed by his holy, a prophet, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What does Paul mean in verse 5 when he's talking about it? It hasn't been made known to the sons and other generations past. What Paul is specifically speaking to is he is finding us in the story. The biblical meta-narrative arc of the story of the Bible. And when you really look at that, you see the first act of the story is in creation. That God created everything and it's good and it's beautiful and it's perfect and he created man and woman. But then the second act comes really quickly in Genesis chapter 3 and it's the fall. That men and women actually got tricked into believing their way was better than God's way. And it's the same trick that we fall for today. We want autonomy. We think our way is better. Don't tell me what to do. And so sin enters into the narrative, into the story, into the plot line. And then this next scene in Act 3, God gives a promise. He calls a man in Genesis chapter 12 named Abram who becomes Abraham says, Listen, I'm going to call you out and you're going to be my people and you're going to bless the nation, so that when people see you, I'm going to give you these laws and these covenants and these ways to kind of these guardrails to live. And when people see you, other nations see you, they should know, man, these, this group worships a God. And that God is real and good. And then you focus on the next act because that was just a foreshadowing. Any good story foreshadows. And so that was foreshadowing the coming of somebody that was going to fix all of it. His name is Jesus. And he comes in act four in redemption and he lives a perfect life and he shows us what this vertical and horizontal gospel looks like played out in real time. And then he goes to the cross on our behalf and he defeats death. And after he's raised from the grave, he is with some of his followers and he's teaching them. And then he ascends to the right hand of the father. And right before he goes up to be with his father, he says, Here, here's what we're going to do. Before other people were looking at the nation of Israel, now I'm going to send you out to tell the people of the goodness of Jesus. And so that's Act 5, which is the church. And that's where we are currently. And that's where Paul was when he wrote this. This is the part of the story that we find ourselves in, which is massively important to understand. And he's saying, listen, these guys in Act 3, when they had the promise, Abraham, David, all these giants of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 that you read about, they didn't have the key that unlocked the mystery, which is Christ. They didn't, they didn't have that. They had to believe by faith. God's going to do it. God's going to We don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. Now, we know how God has done it. And here's what he says in verse 6. He's building on this mystery language, building, building. And then he tells us 
in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what the mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs? Like, like why, why would Paul use that racially charged cultural language? Why wouldn't he just say, here's the mystery, Jesus has come, and you can get your sins forgiven, and it's great. He doesn't do that. He's, remember, he's referring back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. What does it look like to live out this gospel in a vertical, communal way when people are separated from each other and they're being brought together? He says, listen, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And for the Gentile people, they would be like, are, are, you, are you sure? It's like getting an inheritance. You find out you have this distant relative that dies, and you have this massive inheritance, and you're going, I, I've never met this. Are you sure this is right? And for the Jewish people, this wouldn't have been totally scandalous if he had said it this way, this is the mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the law. Because that's how the Jewish people would have processed things. They had verses like Genesis 12. They had verses like Isaiah 56 that said, listen, if there's somebody outside of the nation, bring them in, but they have to follow all the rules. They have to do the covenants. They have to obey the Sabbath to be right with God. And now Paul is saying that's not the case. He's saying the cross levels the playing field. It levels it. Again, imagine if you were in those shoes of a Jewish person at the time. It'd be like if somebody came up here and was a prophet and said, listen, I know you Christians, you believe in the cross. There's somebody else took care of it. The cross doesn't matter anymore. We would be like, what? Like we would freak out. We'd probably throw the guy in prison. That's what happened to Paul. But if it was really true, we really started to believe that the foot of the cross is level for everybody. It changes the way we love other people horizontally. Because the problem starts to happen if we say, come on in, Gentiles, join us. But you have to do this, 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 this. Oh, no, 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 you can't can't do that. And Paul's saying, that's that's not it. They were fine with the Gentiles coming in as long as they assimilated to their culture. And Paul is saying the gospel changes that. Changes it. There's no assimilation other than the cross. And when I think about this passage specifically of who the gospel is for, I can't stop thinking of the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, he sets it up, Luke sets it up as who the audiences are in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, now there were tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, drawing near to Jesus. So these tax collectors, these sinners, they would be the Jewish people. They're not people of God. They're not in the family of God. But they are drawn to Jesus, and Jesus is drawn to them. But then in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. So the Pharisees and the scribes are the religious leaders. They're the Jewish people at the time. And they see Jesus interacting with these Gentile people, and they're kind of grumbling and complaining of like, doesn't Jesus know these people are unclean? They're totally judging how Jesus is interacting with these people. So those are the two audiences that Jesus is specifically talking to when he gives them three stories. First story he tells them, 
is a story about a lost sheep. The second story he tells them is about a lost coin. And the third story he tells them are about two lost sons. You may be more familiar with that third story as the parable of the prodigal son. But I think that title really misses what the essence of that story is. Because if you're not familiar with that story, it's about these two sons and this father. And the younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. I'm ready to have what's mine. And in that culture, that would basically be like spitting on the father's face. I wish you were dead. I, just, I don't want anything to do with you. I just want your stuff. So the father generously, lovingly, graciously gives his younger son his inheritance. And the younger son leaves, leaves the family, spends it. He's going to Vegas, man. I mean, it's crazy. Wild spending. He spends all of it in crazy things. And then the text says there's a famine in the land. And there's a famine that happens in his soul. And he realizes he's at the lowest of the lowest of the low. And he realizes, man, even my father's servants are doing better than me. What if I just go back and I just say, just hire me on as a servant. Like, I don't need to be your son just because that's a better situation. So if you know the story, the younger son goes back and the father is waiting for him. Right? The father is at the edge and he's, he's waiting for his son because he misses his son. He misses relationship with his son. His heart breaks for his son. And all he wants his son is, to do is come back home. So he's waiting and he sees his son and the text says he runs to his son. Which in the original cu- culture, that, that, that would be... A grown man would never run like that. That was undignified. That was kind of um, reckless. And it would, but he runs to his son because he loves him. He runs to his son. He gets to his son. He doesn't say, okay, tell me what you learned. What, okay, I'll, I'll let you come back into the house if you don't ever do it again. If you pay me back, he doesn't do any of that. None of that. He runs and he embraces his son. Puts a ring on his finger robe on his shoulder. He says, we're going to celebrate because you were lost and now you are found. And it's a beautiful picture for these uh, tax collectors and sinners to hear that the Father gravitates towards them, that he wants relationship with them. But then on the back end of the story, we hear about the older son. Look at, as we pick up in verse 25 of Luke chapter 15, it says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. You see that? The father goes out in both circumstances. He chases the son both times. Don't miss that. Chases the younger son, chases the older son, pursues their hearts. Father comes out and treats him. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. My teenager says it all the time to me. You never gave me a goat? Celebrate with my friends. He never says that. We don't have goats. Um, Verse 30. But when his son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? What's the older son saying? 
this isn't fair. Like, he can't even call him his brother. He calls him this son of yours. My wife and I do that too with our kids. It's, that's your son. Disobey. That's, your, that's not my son. That's your son. Disobey me like that. Do you see the problem here with the horizontal version of the gospel? The older son can't deal with what the younger son has done. It's not fair. It's not right. And it actually prevents him from going to the party. He's not loving his brother. So he's not loving his father. It's based on what he's done. I've always obeyed you. I've always done the right thing. I've operated in the law. And now you're letting this guy back in? It's the same thing we see in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. It's scandalous in nature because of grace. Verse 31, listen how the father responds to his older son. He said to him, son, you are always with me. And all, that I, and, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. And what I think Jesus is doing, and just the only way that Jesus can do, is he's turning it on its head, and he's basically saying, you thought, you thought your brother was lost? Now you're lost. You're outside of the family. You're not, you're not in here with us. And so what's preventing the older son from loving God is because he will not love his brother. And as Paul begins to say, listen, don't miss this as I pray for you. I'm going to give some really practical things in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. And if you miss this part, if you just say, no, nah, it's just me and Jesus, or that's just too hard to love that person, you are going to miss the gospel. You're going to miss it. And I have people that it's hard for me to love, and I have to trust God's Spirit to change me to love those other people. Why is Paul use the word mystery here as we kind of close up? The mystery of Christ. Well, you know what's not a mystery? The golden rule. Ten commandments. Being a good person. That's how most people think you get to God or you're good and you're good standards is do these right things. And Paul is saying, no. It's actually the mystery of Jesus. That his grace at the foot of the cross makes everything level. And for us to understand how to be reconciled to God and reconciled to others and really live and lean into this multi-ethnic, multicultural family called the church, when he's going to start giving stuff in chapter 4, we're memorizing as a staff the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 4 right now. And there's a verse, I, it's destroying me in the best way possible on the inside because it's talking about loving other people. And a lot of times I don't like to love other people. And when I don't love other people, I'm not loving God. And so we need to understand this truth as Paul goes on this side rant of the gospel is for everybody. It's for everybody that will come to Jesus. Next week we'll talk about the depths of the gospel and then we'll talk about how this gospel actually gets displayed before he goes in and he prays for the church. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks for this truth for the beauty that we can be reconciled with you vertically. We can be reconciled with you horizontally. Thanks that your gospel is a gospel that's cosmic in nature. You are putting everything back in right order. And Father, that's hard for us as we see things out of order often in our world. And we need your eyes and your spirit to wake us up to the beauty and the truth of who you are. 
Help us do that. We love and trust you. We pray this in your name. Amen.